Welcome to Junkyard Theory, folks. Uh, every single time we do one of these episodes, uh, I am blown away by the guests in the studio, and today is no different. I've got somebody who is instantly recognizable, and if you've been watching TV for the last 20, more than 20 or 30 years, or close to 30 years, you've seen this face, you heard her laugh, you've definitely heard her catchphrase. I am so thrilled to have Maggie Wheeler in the house. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Bon, ma'am. Hi, Bon. <laughs> this, it's, it's amazing to have you here. Uh, I've only recently gotten onto, you know, watching Friends. I am. I'm late. I know. I uh, started watching it at the beginning. Better late than never. Better late than never. <laughs> Definitely better late than never. And your character, Janice, stood out the moment she landed on the show from the very first time you appeared. We had... Uh, Larry Hankin on the show, and it's on the on the episode, uh, I think, uh, where he passes away, and then Chandler uh, doesn't want to end up alone, and he you know kind of gets back together with him. Like, oh, where is this going? <laughs> so hilarious! That it was. That it was. Uh, Maggie, uh, just talk to me a bit about you know uh, I want to get into friends, but talk to me about your origin story. How did you get into show business? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I think that from the time that I was very little, I really loved to make people laugh and my family in particular. And, you know, I would sort of leave the room and come back as somebody that we knew. I loved mimicking voices and uh, and just, you know, uh, being silly. So so I think that from the time that I was very young, I appreciated that kind of take of what happens when you are entertaining people and making people laugh. And, um, and I was always a creative kid and a dreamer and, uh, you know, somebody who reveled in my own imagination. So it was sort of a natural fit that I would want to perform, that I would want to collaborate with other people and, and, you know, basically, you know, join the circus. And, uh, and so I started at a very young age looking for opportunities to do that. Um, and eventually I went to summer stock in Massachusetts at Mount Holyoke College and I worked as an apprentice and, you know, sewing theater curtains and selling tickets. But then I got to be in a couple of shows and, you know, it was like that. And I would take I took many, many classes and worked with wonderful teachers and spent a summer at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And uh, there I met a, an incredible teacher, you know, recipient of the MacArthur Genius uh, Grant, Anna Devira Smith, who became my teacher. And uh, and so it's been a wonderful, winding, creative journey. Of course, the goal always being, you know, please, God, let me have a real job. And, uh, and I started out working as an extra. And I was so excited every time I got an extra job, every time I would you know, get up at four o'clock in the morning and get on some freezing cold bus and drive out to some location and then sit there for some, you know, air line commercial or something. Uh, anything felt like a huge success to me uh, at that time. And I think when I started when I was a teenager, so I think that, you know, even then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll get to be in a commercial or maybe, I'll, you know, there, I, I was just hungry for a start. And um, eventually, uh, the, the, this is a little hard to, to create the little family tree, but my sister's ex-boyfriend's current girlfriend uh at that that's time, complicated my sister's <laughs> ex-boyfriend's girlfriend uh was working for lauren michaels who created saturday night live here mm. and um <clears throat> and he was 
setting out to do a primetime sketch comedy show. And she asked me if I would like to audition. And I was thrilled. I was so excited. I couldn't even believe that I would have that opportunity. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and so then I said, absolutely. Yes, I was 24. I think I was 24. And, um, and uh, she, she said, okay, well, the audition is six minutes of original stand-up. And I had yeah. certainly never done stand-up comedy. I'd never thought about doing stand-up comedy. And here was this incredible opportunity and this assignment. And I panicked. <laughs> and I locked myself in my bedroom and I cried. And I thought, oh, my God, how do I do it? How do I do it? And I ended up writing my six minutes using, in large part, characters from my life, people that I knew. And uh, although I did one crazy little sketch with uh, um, Julia Childs, famous chef, and uh, and Jacques Cousteau, famous undersea educator. Anyway, I had a, I, 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 I played them both having a conversation about about sea bass. But um, anyway, I, I did some crazy things. I really did. I threw myself at it. What I had nothing to lose, or everything to lose, uh, and I got the job. So that was my first big legitimate show. And when it got canceled, 13 you know, episodes in, I thought, well, now is my chance. I better get on an air. First of all, I better learn to drive. I'm a native New Yorker, so you know, nobody drives. Well, not nobody, nobody drives. drives in New York. <laughs> I didn't drive. So I thought, well, I, first I need to learn how to drive, and then I need to get to California. So, um, so that is what I did. So I think I came here at the first when I was 25. And, and then I stayed for a year. It's a long story. The rest is history. Oh my God, there are so many chapters to this crazy story. <laughs> but I went back to New York to do cartoons. And then, uh, oh, I, I'm sorry, I, I should say that on the day that the new show was the name of the show that I did with Lauren Michaels, the day that the new show was canceled, I was taken to dinner by some friends and I met, um, I met a director. I met an independent film director by the name of Henry Jaglum at the restaurant on that night. And at that point I knew I was gonna be moving to California for a bit and he said, come see me. So I went to meet him, he was editing a film. Eventually we agreed to make a film together and we did that. We made a, 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 we made a film called New Year's Day in New York City. And that is what brought me back to Los Angeles because uh, I went to New York, back to New York to do the cartoons. I shot that movie with Henry. And then um, and then when it was ready, I came back to LA just temporarily to be here for the opening of the film. And um, and I met my husband and I ended up staying staying forever. And, and then yes, the rest is history. <laughs> but there, there's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of you know, lean times and good times and and then these kind of crazy small miracles like friends. Yeah. Before we get into friends, uh, a little bit about the whole act acting uh, career, because uh, most most of the time you're, you you finish a job and unless you got something else lined up, you know, uh, essentially you're unemployed. How do you kind of like get through those uh, little spells, you know, because it's well, not easy. Good like you said. Question. It is not easy. I mean, I believe the creative choosing the creative path is the wildest ride it's not a straight road and so you you, you get on it and you strap in and you're like okay <clears throat> i'm on for the ride i i don't know what this is going to look like 
And then you have to invent and reinvent. And I have done everything from, you know, I mean, I painted chilled t-shirts at, uh, for, you know, special order at a children's store. I worked as an assistant to a choreographer for the village people. Uh, I, I, you know, I've done all kinds of crazy things to fill the spaces and to get by. And I've done a hand, a, 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 quite a bit of teaching and, um, and I also, you know, if, if people look me up, they, they can often find that I, I'm a song leader and I, I direct a choir. So <clears throat> many, for many years now, it's 40 years, practically, I've been doing that work in between in the spaces and it's work that's really, really important to me, really dear to me and fills my soul. So I'm lucky that I have kind of, you know, I have these parallel careers and one of them is up to me. And I think that's the critical difference is that I can take that work that I do anywhere at any time, whether it's into a university or a retreat center or a, a someplace locally, and I don't have to ask anybody permission to do it. And show business is like a big game of mother may I, I mean, you know, I don't know if you play, I'm sure there's a version of mother may I all over the world, you know, may I take a baby step? Yes, you may. May I take a giant step? No, you may not. And you know, that's what it is. So I feel like, the the end result when you get to make art is so exciting that for those of us who are addicted to it it's kind of a you know you're just stuck there you can't you can't walk away but at the same time it's critical to have something that you have agency over that is very true that's very true rather than someone telling you what to do what time to be on set or like what to wear all of that if you have something that you control uh that's freedom right yeah, that's freedom. And then you don't go mad and then you don't resent, you know, the weight. Oh, yeah. um, but I also think that uh, I often say this to students, you know, when I speak at schools to acting students and they ask me these similar quiz questions. But I, I also think that, um, you know, there's something about show business and the fact that people get to say yes and they get to say no to you quite often. I mean, there are more no's than there are yeses or we'd be working every day. Um, that there's something that kind of advances your own human development, spiritual development, when you have to face that level of rejection all the time, because it forces you to ask some deeper questions about what your value is and as a human being, and how much does it depend on somebody else saying yes or no? Is your, is your self-worth determined by what other people tell you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, anybody who enters into show business has a little bit of a self-worth, you know, issue that we're all trying to work out. You know, please love me. Please tell me I'm good enough. Please tell me I can come to the party. Please tell me, you know. So I feel like, yeah, okay, we get what we ask for, which yeah. is that the question very often is just going to be thrown right back at you. And then you have to go home and go, okay, what do I do with this now? What do I make of that? That thing that I thought I wanted that was going to change my life and I didn't get it makes you go into reflection mode quite a bit, uh, turn around, maybe uh, in bed, yeah. sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But you know, the, there's a there's a great saying, and I use it a lot. I have two grown daughters now, 22 and 27. But uh, and I, you know, I used it with them all the time, all as, as they were growing and still and I hold it dear. And that is that rejection is protection and direction. And I just think that is true. That's, yeah, that's not, something to reflect on. It is. It's not always easy. It's not an easy pill to swallow sometimes, but yeah. I do think it's true. And <clears throat> when I look back, excuse me, <clears throat> when I look back at my life, 
you know, and I look back at some of that, there were, you know, there are a handful of things I wish I had gotten, you know, that I, that just, I was close and it would have, and, and it, and it changed the trajectory of the lives of the people who got the job. And, but then I look at my life and I look at what happened in the spaces and I look at what I was able to create in the absence of having that be my, my story. And I'm grateful. Anybody who's been long, you know, in, in show business long enough, I've uh, found that they have thick skin, like reptilian thick skin. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it comes as a result of all the rejection, I guess. But uh, you learn to power through all of that. And essentially, like, like you said, that uh, develops you both as a human being and spiritually. So uh, yeah, hats off to all of you guys who are still, you know, in the yeah. show business, business doing what you do. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I want to talk about friends, but right before that, I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening wants to hear that particular catchphrase. What do you mean? Oh my God. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. You heard it. <laughs> she lives in me. <laughs> She's with me forever. We got to do the rest of this podcast with you in character. <laughs> Just, just as Janice, you just want to talk to Janice. You can ask her some special questions. <laughs> what does she think about Bingaling and Bingaling being with Monica for so long? Well, look, you know, it's a great love. You never get over it. <laughs> How did this you'll always, come about? You'll always be my Bingaling in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> It's so it's so amazing it's so amazing that you still make manage to make people crack up even at the friends reunion you hear that catchphrase you know who's coming <laughs> you know what to expect so much fun i mean that moment was i will never forget that what was it like uh, reuniting with all these folks uh, 20 years later it was beautiful actually you know i mean it was it was one of those things where the reunion was you know, was promised and it had several kind of potential iterations that ended up getting canceled because yeah. of various things, right? And not the least of which was COVID. Yeah. Uh, and so it was going to be done this way and then it was going to be done that way. And then when COVID hit, it was going to be done another way. And, you know, it just, you know, they kept saying, save this date. No, save that date. And, uh, and when we finally settled on the date, it was finally going to happen. It was my first outing from, you know, being at home. I was working from home like everybody and I was on Zoom, you know, every day and uh, yeah. and connecting with a lot of people. But it was the first time I was going to be out in the world. And that's a heck of a way to leave the house. And, uh, you know, it's quite it's quite an organization. I mean, somebody came to my house to give me a COVID test and then I had to get another COVID test. And when you arrive, I arrive on the on the lot and the place is crawling with people basically in hazmat suits, like everyone's in paper suits and they're testing people in their cars. It was like, you know, it was it was bizarre. Uh, and then, you know, I'm met by a young PA who's got a mask and a, and a face shield and and they're walking us through. So it was really like landing on another planet. Uh but it was extraordinary. And, you know, I knew that, of course, the setup was that I was going to come out as a surprise. But in my mind, I assumed that people, people in the know knew 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I figured everybody already had a list of at this at this hour, this surprise will happen. And at this hour, this surprise will happen. But it really wasn't like that. Uh, oh, they so didn't know. They were surprised. And that was extraordinary and wonderful. And the creators of the show were left to be surprised in the audience. They didn't know what was coming either. Wow. And I didn't know that until after I was already done and I went down and sat with them and I blew an upcoming surprise because I had seen it backstage. And uh, and one of the creators looked at me and he said, are you kidding? Like that's about to happen. And I was, and I thought, oh, you know, I mean, I just assumed everybody, you all knew what, what was going on. <laughs> anyway, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. It was so warm. They were so wonderful and welcoming. You know, when you see the special, you see a few, you see a, a moment of Jennifer getting up and hugging me and Courtney and I leaning over and kissing, but everybody got up out of their chairs and everybody came over yeah. and, you know, David and Matt and Maddie and everybody, you know, everyone moved and came over and hugged me and all the rest. It's not all there, but it was such a sweet reunion. It was fantastic. It was so much fun. And it was great to meet James Corden and hang out on the couch. I cannot imagine what that must, that must have been like. What a way to uh, come out of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And then when it was over, the coach turned back into a pumpkin and we all went home. You know, I mean, it was like, okay, that it was like a little dream sequence and it was mm-hmm. done. Uh, but at the end, after I was done, I wanted to go sit down in the main area because I knew that this crazy fashion show was coming. How did I know that? Because I had seen Cara Delevingne and Justin Bieber backstage dressed in, you know, the Bo Peep and the potato yeah. costumes. And and so I knew what was coming and I said, oh, I, I really need to watch this. So I went down and I sat with Marta Kaufman and David Crane and Kevin Bright and we, uh, the creators of the show, of the show, and um, and we got to watch all of that together, and it was just so much fun and amazing to see everybody again. And then from there, we went to the stage, and we hung around on the stage, and we you know took pictures with each other and caught up with the people, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful night, and so very emotional, and very sweet. And then, as I say, yeah, then I went home, went inside, closed the door, locked the door. Okay, I guess I'm going to be back inside for another few months. Let's go back 30 years. How did Janice come about? Mm. How did Janice come about? Well, um, okay, let me rephrase that. How did Janice and her voice come about? Yes. So I will say, so, so let's, I'm, I'm just trying, I'm going back to, I'm trying to get it chronologically, mm-hmm. you know, correct in my mind. Uh, I, I, I did this movie. I think this is a story worth telling. So I did this movie with Henry Jaglum, New Year's Day, and it did quite well as an independent film. And it rep- represented the US at the Venice Film Festival. And you know, it, 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 was, it was wonderful. It was a great experience for me. And then I, an, an agent signed me, a new agent signed me. I was with them for that year. And then at the end of the year, they let me go. And I was from New York. I'd been, I, I know I'd never had the experience of an agent letting me go, but this agency, which I didn't know when I signed with them at, at the end of every year, they would kind of, you know, flip through their, their client roster and anybody who hadn't worked or made money, they got rid of. So I didn't know That's that brutal. when I signed with them. I wouldn't, what? It's brutal. That's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. So I had no idea. And it, it hit me, like just came out of left field. Anyway, at that time I had this wonderful young manager working with me. 
And uh, he, we just, you know, we just became like partners in crime. And for six months or more, we, uh, you know, we worked together to try to get me work. And it was, you know, close, but no cigar. It would happen, not happen, almost happen, not happen. And then at the end of that six month period, I booked an episode of Seinfeld, a great episode of Seinfeld that has that I was later told by Larry David is in the top five of their episodes, which makes me very proud. And I had the best time. And I remembered how much I love making people laugh. And I remembered how much I loved working in comedy. And as a result of that episode, some people started to take notice. I got a new agent. Uh, and some people started kind of coming out of the woodwork and wanting to work with me. And out of that, I, a, a role was written for me. That had never happened before. A role was written for me on the very first iteration, first season of the Ellen DeGeneres show, which was called These Friends of Mine. That was the very first season. And there were a lot of things that were tricky about that show behind the scenes. And, uh, and I, I was very fortunate in that I was given the role. I auditioned many times and I, many times, and we did chemistry reads and all kinds of things. But in the end, they gave me the part without my having to go to the network to be approved. So when things started getting a little shaky on that show, there were, you know, the heads needed to roll and mine was the first to go. So I was fired. And it was, again, brutal. I had never been fired from anything. I never thought I would survive it. I never thought I'd leave the house again. I never thought I would work again. I was devastated. I wasn't the last to be fired. I was just the first to be fired. Many people were fired after me. Uh, and, you know, everybody, I mean, Ellen is extraordinary. I absolutely adored working with her. I loved working on that. Um, and of course, everyone knew it was going to be a massive success in all the different ways that they were, they would retool it and they retooled it more than once. Um, but this was round one in the boxing ring and I, I lost the first match. So, uh, then I had to kind of pick myself up and dust myself off and whatever, lick my wounds, all the different <laughs> expressions for how you recover. Um, and, uh. And that is when the audition for Friends came across my desk. And uh, it just said, fast-talking New Yorker, fast-talking New Yorker. That was the description. And then there was the scene with the Bullwinkle socks where she says, you know, you can wear them however you want to wear them, mix and match, moose and squirrel, whatever you want. And... Uh, and I just heard her in my head. I grew up in New York City. As I said, I loved mimicking people, you know, from my life and from the city. And so to me, all those women live in me. And I looked at the page, as I often do when I'm working as an actor, and I and I just heard her. I saw the rhythm in the writing. And that's who that's who showed up. Now, at that point, you know, when I think back on that time, I felt as if I had been thrown out of a plane with no parachute and survived. I mean, that's how being fired from that show felt because everyone knew that show was going to be a huge success. I mean, Ellen is brilliant. No matter what, it was going to be huge. So it hurt. <laughs> and, uh, and at the same time, later on, I was like, thank God I got fired early. Thank God I didn't buy a new car, buy a new house, you know, uh, you know make it impossible for, to sustain my life. Uh, so that was good. <laughs> that was the silver lining. Anyway, 
but I felt free, I guess, at that point as an actor, which is an ironic and un, maybe unexpected result of having something happen like being fired from a, from a high profile job. Not many people would say that. That's what happened to me is that I thought, well, it already happened. The thing that you dread, the thing you fear, the thing you think you'll never recover from, it happened. So, and I'm still here, I'm still alive and somebody wants me to audition. So yeah, I, I'm free. I, let's just do what I want to do. Mm. So that's what happened. I went in and I did what I wanted to do. <laughs> I played with the invisible socks in the audition. I said, mix and match, moose and squirrel, squirrel and moose, whatever you want. And, you know, I, I've told the story before, but it is true that as I was auditioning, I saw Marta and David and Kevin do this. You can, they, they sat back in their chair like that, like they'd seen a ghost. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> well, I guess it was fun for me, but maybe not for them, you know. Then they called me back and they had me do it again. And then I thought, oh, maybe they sat back because they recognized something. Maybe that's what happened. So anyway, that is how Janice came to be. And then I got on the set and I met Matthew Perry and he was bloody hilarious. And his timing is just so good and he's so funny. And I thought, uh-oh, he's going to make me laugh in the middle of a scene. Like, there's no way. He, this guy's going to crack me up. And of course, I was nervous and I wanted to be good. I wanted to be serious in my comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to get fired. So I thought if I crack up, if I lose my, you know, if I lose it, well, because Matthew makes me laugh, I'm going to get in trouble. So I'm like a little schoolgirl, like, I don't want to get in trouble. So, <laughs> so I devised the laugh so that I could cover if Matthew made me laugh. So that was you really laughing, but no, you were covering it up with. Well, I mean, I ended up using it in those moments. So the first time I used it is when, you know, he, in that first episode that I was on, he's, he's downing all of this, these espressos. He's on his 99th mm. espresso. He's just knocking them back. And then he brings me the cappuccino or whatever he brings me in the massive bowl cup. And then as I put it to my mouth, he says, do you want another one? Or something to that effect. Can I get you another one? Whatever it is, whatever it was, the timing was so good. And that is when I looked at him and I went, ah, no, I just started this one or what? I don't remember the line, but that was the <laughs> first time that I used it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Crazy, crazy, crazy <laughs> journey. And as many people know, or as some people perhaps don't, Janice was a one-off. It was one episode. That's it. I was just coming in as a guest star. For one episode and it turned into 10 years of glorious amazing work well you went in there and nailed it and i want to come back to something you mentioned uh that in the audition you said you were having fun and that turned out it snowballed into something that lasted a decade yes that's what, correct. what have you learned from that because i mean uh it, it's so very often like you know you are trying so hard at doing something like impressing people, all that, and you're not really having fun, but something you do not for other people, but more so for yourself, that ends up uh, lasting for far longer, having a, a longer effect. That's a longer shelf life. It's absolutely right, Akash. I mean, like that is what you learn 
by stumbling and getting up and stumbling and getting up, right? Because there I was, I mean, you know, I'd already been doing this for a long time, but I don't know that I'd ever given myself so much permission to follow my instincts. And I mean, I think I had in the past and it had probably worked out for me before, but still, I think that I did have this driving need to impress people and want, as I say, you know, can I come to the party? Am I good enough? Do you like me? You know, uh, and also just saying, okay, I see all this information on the page. They must be looking for someone like this. So how am I going to, you know, put myself the square, the round peg through the square hole or whatever it is so that I can be the thing that they are looking for. And that can get in the way of being the best that you can be as an actor. That can get in the way of, of allowing your own uniqueness and your own unique take on something to be the thing you bring into the room because you're so, you're so consumed with wanting to fit the, the, the brief. And uh, you either do or you don't. Uh, so, so I think that there's there's great wisdom in in accessing one's own uniqueness and doing something that is true to you. You know, it worked for me uh, many years earlier in the craziest way, and that is when I did The Parent Trap, the movie The Parent Trap, because there I was. I read the script, I read the audition, and it was the, this camp counselor. And she's the daughter of the woman who runs the camp. And I thought to myself, oh, they're never going to give this to me. She's going to, they, they're going to want somebody with like short hair and, and, you know, who looks, who, you know, who looks like she could climb six mountains. And, you know, that was just my assumption is like, I know who this character looks like and I know it's not me, but I really wanted a shot at it. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? Because I can't pretend to be that I'll never, I'll never, you know, I'll never keep up with the people who can just walk in the door as that. So instead I went all the way in this other crazy direction. I put my hair in these two silly, stupid braids. I long like skinny little braids and I wore a pair of overalls and a whistle. And, and I, <laughs> I played her like this extreme with a, with a, with a, a very strong lisp and like extremely, strange girl who was like sort of stuck as about a 14 year old and she was just her mother's daughter and she was just going to be at camp for her whole life because summer camp is everything that's what i did i played this goofy character that that i created out of thin air as my version of this character and the the directors uh nancy myers and charles shire they they, they, they were there. Oh no, I'm sorry. I auditioned for a casting director and she was putting me on tape. Right. And I walked in, I did the crazy thing in my crazy outfit, my crazy braids. And she said, I think I need to take you to the director. I think I, I think the directors need to see you. I think it was so weird. And I was so excited. I'm like, Oh my God, look what just happened. So then I went to meet the team and I did the thing and Charles leaned over to Nancy and he said, does she really talk like that? And she said, Charles, she's Janice, she's Janice on Friends. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. And I did that crazy movie. Um, 
And it was so much fun. And by the way, I wasn't allowed to play her exactly like that because it's a Disney movie and they wanted to make sure that I, that nobody was offended, um, that people who are working with speech impediments or whatever, that I didn't offend anybody. So she lost, we lost the list in the, in the final creation of the character. But anyway, that was just another day that I took a big risk. Gotcha. <laughs> it's crazy because uh, I, I thought that was your real voice when I watched Friends. And uh, my girlfriend told me that it wasn't. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> a lot of people ask. And that. then uh, for, for, for a long time, I, yeah, for a long time, I didn't even want to check any of the interviews out or anything because I wanted to be done with, you know, all 10 seasons and then get into the reunion and see what you actually sounded like. But uh, since we were having this, I went back and checked it out. And I was like, Oh, she does not sound like Janice. <laughs> no, I do not. Thank goodness for my friends and family. But yeah, uh, Maggie, we were talking about uh, your music career. Uh, I think it's best if we uh, kind of you know, start from the beginning. Uh, yeah, so I will say that as a child, um, I was a New York kid and uh, you know, many families kind of sent their kids away in the summer to get away from their children and uh, to get their children out of the city. And so I was fortunate that I was sent to a summer camp in Vermont that was run by Pete Seeger's brother. And Pete Seeger is sort of the father of American folk music. And uh, and so I was surrounded by folk musicians and and we would sing around the campfire at night. And that experience really sort of um, formed me in many ways. And I felt very happy there. And I hated leaving at the end of the summer. I was gone for two months every summer, starting from the time I was seven, turning eight. And um, so I think that I that in, in many ways, I sought that out in my life, places where I could sing with other people, places where I could recover that feeling of being in community uh, around music. And so uh, eventually I became a longtime student of a woman named Isai Maria Barnwell, who sang bass for an uh, acapella ensemble called Sweet Honey in the Rock. Uh, and so that was a really an, another kind of formative experience. And, and then at the end of that, I took that knowledge and I took that, uh, you know, yeah, that experience out back out into the world. And I started leading people in song first in New York City and out of the group that I was leading, uh, several of us stepped away and formed an acapella group called Sons and Daughters. And then when my acting career took me out of New York and to Los Angeles, I left my singing family and my singing world and I, I really was bereft. Like there was just something very critical kind of missing in my life. And uh, it was when my husband and I were still dating, uh, he said, you know, you should just uh, I mean, he's an artist and he said, I'll talk to my gallerist, you know, maybe she'll let you use the gallery some Sunday and you could just invite people to come. And I thought, oh my God, no, I'm not going to do that. That sounds crazy. But the more I thought about it and the more he encouraged me, and then she said, yes, you can have the space. And I thought, okay, it's all going that way. So I began, and this is now 30 years ago in Los Angeles, I began um, gathering people once a month uh in this gallery space and it started out with 30 people and eventually it was 80 people and and i would just lead song for those hours and then when my kids were born i stopped for a little while uh my first daughter was born i i was just you know being a mom and not getting a lot of sleep um and then <laughs> when uh when 9 11 happened people reached out to me and said 
you know, we need to heal. The community needs healing. Please come sing. Please, you know, can we do something here? Can we do something there? And so out of that, I started again. And uh, I was very fortunate that the, the woman who I did my kind of prenatal yoga with, her name is Gurmukh Khalsa, she invited me to teach in her new space, which is a, was a beautiful, beautiful studio in Los Angeles that used to be Frank Sinatra's rehearsal studio back in the day. Oh, wow. Big warehouse space, big vaulted ceilings, wooden seats. It was like being inside a big guitar. And I walked in there and I took one look at it and I thought, oh, uh, we have to sing here. So I started, um, I started teaching some workshops there. And then I was very fortunate in that my kids were 10 and six, I think at that time. And I decided that I needed to take a mom break for the first time since they were born. And so I went away to, to see my teacher, to see Izai. She was teaching in Canada and I spent a week there um, singing with her. And I met all of these extraordinary people from from Canada, and uh, and I don't know why this phone is ringing when I've told my people that they can't talk to me and it's on airplane mode. <laughs> Listen, so um, so uh, anyway, I met all these crazy wonderful people in Canada, and they said, "Oh, you should come to Canada." You know, the people who run our choir do this leadership training. It's called the Community Choir Leadership Training. You should come. And I thought, "Oh, I don't need to start a choir. That is not what I need to do." But something, oh, but before I left that week, this woman, her name was Gloria, she came up to me and she said, I would just like to say to you that, that uh, I would like to tell you this quote by Balzac, and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the quote because I don't know it exactly, but this is what she said to me, this is what I remember her saying, is that for those who don't follow their soul's vocation, it just bleeds like the colors of paint rest of their lives and that those were the parting words that she shared with me as I got on the ferry and I got on the plane and I got on the and I went back to New York and I'm back to Los Angeles I'm sorry and I thought god maybe I need to go to Canada and do this training you know and it was just like this little woodpecker that kept tapping at my head saying if you're scared you should do it so I went to Canada and I did this I left my kids for two weeks which was radical and I did this fabulous, beautiful thing that changed my life, met a lot of incredible people. And I realized that I could start a choir. It just had to be a choir according to my rules, which meant that everybody could come, that everybody was welcome. There was no sheet music. It's all taught in the oral tradition, that it's intergenerational, that kids could be there, that I would create an arts corner for them so that they didn't have to sing or nobody was telling them how to be, but they could be in the space while they're adult people were creating music together. And that is something that I started 17 years ago. It's called the Golden Bridge Community Choir or the Golden Bridge Choir. And uh, and it's been a huge part of my life. And I also travel and I teach uh, my workshop, which is called Singing in the Stream. And, um, and so it's just, yeah, it's been, I, I teach at the Omega Institute in upstate New York during their family week every summer, I teach the adults. And anyway, it's really, it's it's just been this incredible blessing and through line in my life. It means a huge amount to me. And when the pandemic hit, I took my choir online and then I started a public event called Together in Song. And I ran it every Saturday of 2020. And I I invited other musicians to come and sing with, sing with people. And I reached 4,000 people all over the world. Wow came every weekend, the word spread, people found out about it. I had people from all over the world joining us. Uh, and wow. it was an incredible thing, incredible. So now, you know, now I'm, I, we're at that, this new doorway back, you know, that we're, 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 we're considering the idea of being back in person with each other. And I just mm -hmm. did my first live um, facilitation evening uh, this past Tuesday. What, what's today? 
I don't even know. Today's, today's, today's Friday. Friday. Today's Friday. Friday. Tuesday yeah. night, I went out and I taught 50 people inside a space and it was beautiful. And I'm going to um, North Carolina at the end of September to a place called the Art of Living Retreat Center uh, with my friend Arne Batson. And we're teaching a workshop called Songs of Sustenance for the weekend. And it's all acapella and it's all call and response for everybody to learn. And yeah, so that's, that, that's that. amazing. I, I, uh... Does this have uh, a space online, maybe a website or something that people can check out? Yes, uh, goldenbridgechoir.com. There we Golden go. Uh, link's going to be in the description below. For I, I, know, I, write, I, I write a lot of music for people to sing too. I write a lot of songs. So yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's it's the other half of, of my creative life. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, we uh, have a question here. Hi, Maggie. We love Janice so much that we'd love to see more of her story. Assuming Martha and David give the green light for a friend's spin-off show based on Janice, would you still do it? Yes, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely do it. Where would you like to see Janice go? Um, you know, I don't know. I think there's many avenues, but I think, you know, Janice is extremely social and uh you know i think she likes to help people and she is very focused on love and so i always imagine that she might have you know a, a talk show or a podcast or be a or, or sort of be a relationship therapist which i think would be quite funny um you know <laughs> and and then and then on the side she would have a handbag company leopard print and animal print you know qvc kind of you know on online shopping <laughs> And in uh, in the age of the internet, would she still be occasionally, I don't know, maybe stalking Chandler online? Oh, stalking Chandler. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think Janice ever stopped watching Chandler <laughs> on Instagram and Facebook for sure. <laughs> and maybe crying over her, crying over her evening glass of wine <laughs> with, her, with her current husband in the other room. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Another one, uh, is there a ca any character throughout your career that you would say is most like you? Uh, that's interesting. I've played some really funny characters. Uh, you know, I, the, the, um, the movie that I made with Henry Jaglum, which is called New Year's Day, he works in a very autobiographical or biographical way. Uh, his, his process is extremely improvisational. So there is a storyline, but it's basically born out of a lot of people's truths and a lot of people's stories. And then it's expanded on so that there is, you know, a, a nice healthy dose of fiction as well. So that character, Lucy, that I played in New Year's Day is very close to me in many ways. And in some ways not. <laughs> <laughs> it's all never autobiographical. It's you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you create like a whole... Yeah, but I mean, it, it was it was a, a real um, uh, a real game changer for me to be mm. able to play a character that was uh, you know in large part improvised because it as an actor it put me in my body it put me in my own language it put me in my own uh, you know my own forms of expression in a in a star in a story that had a complete arc and you know you don't that's not what you get to do really you know. At, often get oh i have a scene or i've got two scenes or whatever it is so it was a real gift in that way and it changed me as an actor for sure definitely is there any uh 
skill that you gained, you know, uh, on, on like a different walk of life that you've, uh, I don't know, been working on through the rest of your life that has translated uh, or transferred into a skill that has helped you out in acting? Uh, hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think that everything you do sort of as a human being, every, you know, whether it's, whether it's navigating family dynamics or it's, it's, you know, navigating friendships or losing love or experiencing grief or, you know, anything that is real in your life that, that takes you through something either in joy or in hardship is something that is going to enhance your ability to show up as an actor in an authentic way. Yeah. Essentially, you go through life acquiring all these skills, which you can then, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, you channel them later on during or like while you're prepping for performances and then, I guess, like funnel that energy into whatever character you are emoting. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the, you know, the thing, even in crazy kind of broad comedy situations like Janice, you know, in mm. France, I think one of the reasons people respond to her is because there are these authentic moments of that, that touch people. Like you see her humanity, you see that yeah. she doesn't know what's going on, or you see that she's oblivious, or you see that she's in love, or you see, you know, there are these moments that somehow through that broad character, there's still some authenticity and it's finding its way through. So I think that, you know, yeah, it's just, we're all students of, of, human interaction human behavior, human behavior. Yeah. yeah yeah the fact that friends as a show has stood the test of time and still continues to go on reruns and it's being watched by so many people and so many people are rediscovering re it uh re it what do you think is behind that phenomenon is it is it the relatability is it the good comedy the good writing or it's like what I, I, think I know it's, it's all of it. I think it's all of those things. And I also think that, you know, there is something about friends. There is something about this lightning in a bottle chemistry mm. that they were able to create by casting it so perfectly. You know, they just cast that show perfectly. And then, you know, the beauty of casting a show perfectly and the beauty of having all those years to develop it is that you get, you know, the writers get more and more specific and honed in on what makes an actor sing, you know, what makes an actor shine. I mean, Matt LeBlanc's character is a perfect example. The way his character just kept developing and developing and developing in these incredible ways. And he just kept growing into it and growing it. So you just fall, fall more and more in love with that character uh, every season and with all of them, with all of them. So I, I don't know. It's the brilliance of the writers. It's the sensitivity of the showrunners and the creators. Um, and it's the, it's the casting and it's the chemistry. Having been into as many auditions as you have, which I'm pretty sure is quite a lot, uh, at this point, maybe get some sort of an intuitive uh, idea that this is what the casting agent's going for, or this is what the director's looking out for. Do you kind of... Uh, have any idea or I don't know. Akash, if I had any, if, if I had any idea, 
I'd be working a lot more than I do. So no, I don't. I, I believe that, you know, I, I have no idea. Absolutely. And actually, it's none of my business. It's none of my business. All I can do is bring to it what I have to offer. And if that serves the greater good, if that serves the project, I'm going to get the job. Nothing else is even in the room. You know, everyone is nervous. Everyone wants something to be good. Everyone has a little, you know, has the pressure behind yeah. them at every level of the thing, from the casting director to the director to the costumer. Da, 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 da. Everybody is nervous and everybody wants it to go well. So what, you know, my job is, is to bring something that will make everything, that will make somebody go, oh, okay, she's got it. We can check that off. You know, we don't have to worry. She just came in and either showed us something we didn't know was there or showed us exactly what we were looking for that we knew we wanted or showed us exactly what we were looking for that we didn't know we wanted. That's a beautiful, beautiful way of looking at it. Because <laughs> I know like so many people go into like, you know, a lot of things with their mind on, okay, what's this person expecting from me? But uh, Yoansa, I think, kind of nails it. Right on well, the head. I, have to, I mean, I am vulnerable to that kind of thinking, and I do get caught up in my head asking myself those questions, which are not particularly useful. I mean, yes, you want to serve the material. You don't want to just go, oh, well, you know, she's a lawyer, but I'm going to come in a bathing suit and goggles. You know, <laughs> you, 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 you want to serve the material, yeah. you know, but at the same time, um, I think our own unique qualities are the things that are going to show through it's kind of a you know i mean everybody wants to be meryl streep i mean i'm not speaking for all men but you know you know everybody wants to be seen as the ultimate chameleon and and i could play a lot of roles that i'll never get you know i mean i could i have the ability to do it and to transform and I'm excellent with dialects and I can I could do any number of things but but the fact is there is a little bit of a lane you know the industry looks at you and they see what they see and I guess I, something that I would say is that you know the reason Janice came into existence is because I stopped avoiding the lane I feel like there were many, 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 many years before that. I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to play her. I don't want to let anybody know that I can. You know, I want people to understand my versatility. I want opportunities to play all kinds of people. I want to be taken seriously. I blah, 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 blah. You know, but it was being it was losing the Ellen DeGeneres job that that liberated me to say, oh, it's the lane. I'm just going to get it. I'm just, I'm going to get in the car and drive. I know how to do it. And that's what happened. So I think there is also great wisdom in going, okay, here, what's my lane? What's my lane that people are, that, that it's not, it's not the only thing I can do, but it may be yeah. the only thing the people on the other side of the desk will see, or maybe the only door they'll open. Hmm. So, I, you know, I, I, I've come to love that. That's an interesting perspective because uh, you have so many performers afraid of being typecast. And, but sometimes like uh, you have actors who are typecast as one character and they try something else and it doesn't always work out. It's like, okay, go back to what you did. That's how the audience also sees you after a while. And uh, essentially what you're saying is stop trying to resist what you're good at. 
That is exactly what I'm saying. Don't resist what you're good at. Use it, show it, mm. have fun with it. It might be the thing that unlocks the gate. And I under, you know, people ask me a lot, you know, were you worried about being typecast? Do you feel that you've been typecast? Do you think that people only see you as Janice? You know, 10 phenomenal years of, of joyful work. Yeah, I don't, I don't, when I look at myself here, I can't figure out which side of my head is my head because I'm reversed. So like, I keep trying to like fix my hair and I'm pull, I, I, you know, it's like this. You've been okay. mirrored. So yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a fascinating little conundrum because we're actors. We want to do everything. We want you to be able to see that I could play the queen of England, but you know, am I going to get it? Nope. I'd still love to see you do that with a Janice impression. <laughs> the Queen of England as Janice. Okay, well, that's you know, that, somebody might let me do that. <laughs> she, they just, Janice could just have her own country. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to watch that show. <laughs> we have another question here. Uh, did you talk about working with Neil Patrick Harris on an episode of How I Met Your Mother? Yes. Oh my gosh, Neil Patrick Harris and I worked together first and that was his first show where he played a 15 year old doctor and I was a fellow medical student and we were sort of punished. We were put together for two nights to be patients together and they did things to us to make us uncomfortable like i wore my glasses were covered in vaseline so i couldn't really see it they wanted to teach us empathy and 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 so doogie and i were in a room together and i absolutely love him he's amazing to work with he's an incredible person uh, you know, I got to work with him when he was just a young guy and we just started, we were both just starting out and, um, or, well, you know, he was a little further along than I was cause he was Doogie Hauser. But anyway, I got to be on that show and I had the best time with him. So when I had the chance to do, uh, how I met your mother, I was thrilled and I had a fabulous time, just incredible to reunite with him and, and celebrate his incredible success and to be a part of that and um the director directed me and friends as well so uh it was really a sort of a, a great reunion and I, I i loved it i just loved working on that show and i loved playing that awful real estate woman and uh and and it was a very funny premise that you know they i i i, I sold them this apartment down by the sewage treatment plant where everything <laughs> so anyway i really i had a great time you also you've also done voiceover work, like voice acting, and uh, I had no idea that you were, were on Silverhawks because that was one of those cartoons that I enjoyed so much as a kid. I and love that. you were on it. That that was amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cool! You know, here's what happened. I I finished that television show that with Lauren Michaels. I came out to Los Angeles for a year, my first year. Learned how to drive. Came out to mm -hmm. LA to pursue my career. And uh, and Rankin Bass, which is uh, no longer, but was the animation company that did all of these Christmas specials that we grew up on in the U.S. I, I have no idea how far they've traveled, but the you know the the Island of the Misfit Toys and the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, all of these claymation animation stop motion um christmas specials uh that rankin bass is famous for those um 
and uh, and they reached out to Lauren Michaels and they said they were looking for somebody for this superhero cartoon. And did he have anybody that you know he could recommend? And he gave them my audition tape from the new show, which was my six minutes of original standup where I did many voices. And they were interested in meeting me, but they wouldn't pay for me to come to New York. They were in New York. Mm. I was in Los Angeles at that time. They said, you know, you'd have to fly yourself here to audition. And I was so excited. I got on a plane. I went back to New York. I auditioned for the job and I got it. And I played all the female characters in Silverhawks. And I played the, you know, the, I played, uh, Steelheart and Melodia, so the you know the good girl and the bad girl, and I played all the other female characters that came along, and I played a bunch of male characters as well, and it was the most fun. I mean, we would have table reads at the beginning of every week, and it was really a free for all. It was all men and me, mm -hmm. and, and all of them. I mean, some of them were just you know icons in the animation world, and uh, it was so exciting. And we would sit around and we would basically audition for the roles. If we had an idea, we'd throw it out. It was it was trial by fire. You know, I was the youngest. Oh, no, that's not true because, uh, uh, oh, no, Seth Green was not in that. Something else we did together. But um, but anyway, I was the youngest and I was the only woman. And, you know, this new character would come up and we'd sit around a table and everybody would throw something out. And I had to be brave, you know, to come up against these titans and say yeah i got an idea anyway we just had the the best time uh and we made silver hawks and we made i don't know 65 the first season was 65 episodes it's a very good job most of the furniture i own today was mm -hmm. paid for by that job no really <laughs> yep. my couch my dresser yep <laughs> silver hawks dear to my heart and then i went on and i did some more show, some more work for rankin bass which i really really enjoyed that's iconic and i'm i'm kind of surprised that they haven't uh, decided to revive that franchise just yet because uh, i see a lot of potential in that one i hope they do that would be yeah. so fun you know i think they did revive thundercats which the, was yes they did right yeah. they did they did um, they did yeah but I, I can't tell you how much I loved being on Silverhawks. It was the best job. Best job. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, with regards to friends, is there anything that you, I don't know, maybe accidentally borrowed or permanent, uh, that you permanently borrowed from set? Oh, that's an interesting question that I accidentally or permanently and permanently borrowed from the set. Yeah. Uh, most of the things that I have, if not all, were given mm -hmm. to me with permission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I do have like a keychain that was in my bag in an early season. I know it's early because my eldest daughter is a babe. There's a picture of her. The the um, the props department said, "Give us a picture of your baby. We'll put it. We'll put it in." So it's a really ugly keychain, but it's got a picture of my daughter in it. And I have a few pairs of pants. Um, I don't fit into them anymore, <laughs> but I do possess two fabulous pairs of pants and, uh, uh, they're, they're in a box somewhere. Uh, I think that might be all I have from, from, from the set. Your Janice pants. My Janice pants, the gold pants I have. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's the thing where she's, that's the, the one where she says, call me when this goes in the pooper. I think that's <laughs> wearing the gold pants. 
And I also have the green pants that I wore when I said, you know, oh, buy me a vowel because, oh, my God. <laughs> it's it's crazy, like, how <clears throat> that character has uh, evolved and been in and out of uh, the main character's lives periodically. Like, she dated Chandler, she dated Ross very briefly. And every single time she comes on, you know that you know there's going to be mayhem. Yeah. <laughs> what was the most fun to you about uh, seeing your character develop very in, in in brief pockets? Like you have maybe an episode or two every season to show yeah. how what this character has been through, where she's going, and where how different uh, her situation is from where she was the previous season. It's like compressing a lot of work in one. It was such a gift, right? I mean, I never knew if I was coming back or not. So every time it happened, it was just like Christmas. You know, I would they would call me. They would tell me. I would be so excited. And then I'd wait up at night. They'd drop the script out outside my front door at like 1 o'clock in the morning. I would rush. You know, I'd hear it hit the thing. I'd open the door, go sit down and find out what's she doing? Who is she now? Where is she now? Um, so that was just the most incredible to be able to tell that story across the years and um uh so yeah well tell me i I, now i'm forgetting the complete question but how did she develop uh, yeah what what was it like compressing all you know Mm -hmm. characters uh development to like one or two episodes per season ah well i guess you know the other thing you have to take into consideration is that all the time that has passed has Mm -hmm. also passed for the other for the other characters in our real lives, you know, so it would, it's different. Let's say, you know, you're shooting something in three months and every time you come to the set to shoot, you're, you're in a new year. It's not, wasn't like that. In fact, I was in a new year. (laughs) We were all in new years every time it happened. So I felt like there was a kind of organic quality to that development of the character and that move, the movement of time Uh, that never felt inauthentic or or hard to manage or anything. It was just like, okay, oh my gosh, this is where we are now. Um, Yeah, and I was just excited as an actor to kind of, to say their words. You know, they wrote me the funniest stuff. I got a chance to say some of the funniest things. Uh, So yeah, I just think it was exciting. I don't know what more to say about it, except that, you know, I was honored and thrilled to be part of this ever, you know, this continuing story. And I know that, you know, sometimes they'd be sitting in the writer's room till the wee hours of the night trying to break a script and make it work. And something, they'd run into some kind of roadblock and they just weren't particularly happy or just wasn't particularly getting where they wanted to go. And somebody in the wee hours would say, Janice, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like the linchpin. So, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Maggie. Just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This means a lot to myself and all the friends, friends from uh, over here in Sri Lanka. Uh, could you, you know, I mean, I, I know I see so many uh, comments over there asking for that one famous Janice line again. And uh, let me just combine it this way. Could you uh, talk to the Sri Lankan uh, fans? As Janice, I absolutely can, and I want to say, oh my God, everyone! First of all, Akash, I want to thank you for having me on this show to talk about all things 
Janice, and uh, to all of you out there who love the show and who love me, uh, I want to say thank you very, very much, and I hope I've brought you quite a lot of laughter over the years. <laughs> very special laughter. And, uh, you know, just keep watching, keep listening, and I love you all. <laughs> and we love you too. Thank you so much. And this is Junkyard Theory, folks.